Welcome to Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca/podcast. We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We have arrived at a major turning point in Mark's gospel, indeed, the major turning point. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem to face the fate he has been promising will be his and whose details have been given most recently down to specifics. The disciples persist in various forms of blindness and half-blindness, but doggedly he instructs them and they follow. Their fate too has been described, and it is to their credit they do not turn and head in the other direction. Not yet. We now enter the frame passage matching the one that opened this middle section of Mark back in chapter 8, whose counterpart of healing a blind man is there related at Bethsaida a section centering on the three passion predictions. A section, as we noted last week, devoid of specific geographical orientation so the focus can fall on Jesus' teaching of disciples in the final days before reaching the fateful arena of God's action in him. Jericho is now the named locale Jericho, the city but 12 miles east of Jerusalem itself. The city conquered first by Joshua and now conquered in its own way by Jesus, the son of David. The geographical notice Mark supplies is odd. He enters and immediately leaves, a point usually put down to redaction or some other explanation. But Mark likely wants the echo from Joshua to register. This also helps underscore, one can imagine, the urgency clearly at work in the blind beggar. It's his last chance. Sitting by the road at his hometown exit, Jesus is setting his face toward the capital 12 miles uh, away. It's now or never. And blind Bartimaeus is up to it. He cries aloud to the point of disturbing a faceless crowd gathered around Jesus. And their rebuke only intensifies his blind urgency. Rumor has reached his ears that this is Jesus' of Nazareth, and he wants to see again. Presumably, he has lost his sight. Many note this matches the reality of the disciples, who had seen and been witnesses to Jesus' dramatic work 
and then begin to falter as the light grows dimmer and they need to find renewed sight to move forward into Jesus' dark night. If so, this healing is a good harbinger. Things need not spiral down at this fateful hour. Cry out for the Son of David. You are right to persist with all your strength. With this messianic cry, Son of David, the blind Bartimaeus serves as a kind of forerunner of the Palm Sunday crowds when Jesus enters into the city from the Mount of Olives. The throwing off of his cloak, which we read, has lots of resonance with baptism. And the declaration of the baptizand that she or he want to see and find a new life in Jesus. Justin, Gregory Nazianzus, Clement all speak of baptism as a kind of sight receiving, a form of illumination. Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do? No matter how obvious the ailment or need, as we have seen previously, we must articulate our needs and not just box the air. If true healing and relationship with the healer are to be ours. The following of Bartimaeus on the way, a kind of key word in Mark's gospel, is redolent of Isaiah's second exodus language. Exiles returning to Jerusalem and appropriate for one depicted as enrolled behind Jesus on his ultimate way, perhaps serving as no bad model for the twelve themselves, struggling for sight and insight, both. Our Old Testament reading in Tract Two's pairing comes from Jeremiah, who, like Isaiah, has his own version of Second Exodus language, and we see this admixture in Isaiah as well, where a second exodus is joined with the pilgrimage motif and the depiction of the return to Zion from all corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. And here further we find in Jeremiah's rendition, the blind and the lame in their midst, a great company. They walk a straight path, all the same throwing off their cloaks of whatever weaving, because called by the one who is, in Jeremiah's language, Father and Lord. Our psalm for the day in Tract 2 reinforces the praise called for by the prophet Jeremiah when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then were we like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for Bartimaeus, for us, and we are glad indeed. 
Note in the psalm as well how this fact of praised thanksgiving for God's past actions, remembered and relived, as we've just heard, will become the occasion for present salvation as well as tears sown in the present are turned into harvested songs and weeping into joy shouldered. A marvelous image of transformation appropriate for the blind beggar on the way behind the healer. The letter to the Hebrews provides its own version of this ongoing, permanent, generation-to-generation-to-generation salvation. For Jesus holds his high priesthood permanently because he walked the way of our salvation. And so he continues now as high priest forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always asking, what do you want me to do for you? And he is always ready to do it. In his priestly role, for us sitting by the side of the road, who call out in faith an honestly named need. Jesus needs to make no sacrifice for his own sins, for his priestly order, according to the oath sworn to Melchizedek, is of a different caliber and character, given the sacrifice once for all time, he goes to Jerusalem to make for us. In track one, we come to the final reading from Job and what one might call the denouement, the unnodding of the plot the book has set before us in all its stark unfolding. To speak of a resolution, a denouement, an unknotting, of course, would imply we know just what the book has set into motion. If it is to explain innocent suffering, it's unclear just how the divine speech or the ending has done that. As an old teacher once put it, when you're blue, go to the zoo, is hardly an adequate solution. If it's just to reward Job for an ordeal no one can fully understand, except to say he was somehow right and the friend's wrong is true enough in terms of Job's lavish and well-earned final compensation, sympathy, comfort, double what he lost with beautiful new children to boot. But in my view, we must remember how the book set the matter up to begin with, which is something Job himself did not know and never would know. Appropriate, if also terribly true, to the nature of the test God allowed to befall him. Satan had argued that no one would serve God for naught or nothing but God's own sake. And Job has done just that. 
with nothing to show for it except an unwillingness to leave the field where he and God alone met when all was said and done. The 14th chapter of Ezekiel reminds us of how Job was remembered, a man of great intercessory prayer and power who daily offered sacrifices for his children just in case they had been wayward. I think it is crucial to note, and it's in our reading today, at just what point Job is resuscitated. There is the denouement. He confesses that God has showed himself and that this amounts to a contrast between what he or anyone might know by hearsay and deep personal knowledge. Now my eye sees thee. In the dust he hands himself over to God. And it is in just this posture that Job, we are told, takes up the role that had been his pride and joy and that he was renowned for and would always be. He prayed for the three that had turned against him. Nowhere do we read that God asked this of him. What we learn is that their account of God provoked his anger against them. But in the end, Job let all of that go, and he prayed for his friends. And here, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he, still on the ash heap, prayed for his friends. The remainder of the story is just the sort of ending that is required, fitting for the hero of this long ordeal. But Satan has been vanquished. And true to form, is nowhere on the scene, presumably back to his prowling the earth in search of new victims. Until that final day, when he comes forth with all his might and is exposed and defeated by the very Son of God himself, the path, the way he is taking this Sunday and for the next Sundays into Jerusalem for victory. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are them who trust in him and who, like Job, never waver. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.